Tell everyone what God has done for you. And, and so he went and he shared what Jesus had done in his life. And here's praying that we've had an opportunity to do some of that this past week. Here's, here's why this is so important. When we encounter scripture that has such clarity like that for us, and when the application is not something that springs from my imagination, but the application is right there on the page, we get hit with that, and then we remain unmoved and do nothing about it, well then, our heart gets a bit more crusty, and we slide down the road becoming Pharisees. And I think for, for, for any of us that didn't really allow the scriptures to give us a challenge, to put an application into place, where we don't really listen to the word, but we do what it says, that if in any way we were anything but engaged in the conviction of the Holy Spirit, or if we pushed it off, Let's be a bit alarmed right now. And to recognize, we're in the Word of God. This is a huge deal. This is explosive, amazing work of the Holy Spirit that has come together. And and for us to to not just kind of be somewhat amused by it, but really called to be the body of Christ by it. And so now, as Jesus makes his way from that amazing story and that application, we now see him encounter... Two astounding situations. And it's a a situation where at the center of it is a whole lot of shame that's involved. And and before I read the passage, I just want to talk about that for a second. Because maybe it's you sitting here right now, or maybe it's somebody that you, you know that you need to make a little extra effort for. But I think for most of us, it's really us in some different ways that we may be harboring some sort of a shame that we really don't want to bring out into the full open. And afraid that if we do, we'll be viewed differently by a community of faith, by the very body of Christ. Well, the nice part about it is we get to encounter in this story someone who does deal with the fact that she has a deep shame, a religious prohibition that excludes her even from community life of faith. And yet Jesus' insistence is that this is all to be reconciled, this is all to be made right, this is all to be brought out into the open. Not just kind of hide and gloss it over and hope for the best in all of this. And you know, it was a couple of years back when Deb and I were serving in the ministry up in Northern Virginia. And I began to have a friendship with One of the the husbands who was not yet in the faith. His wife had been very faithful. Her name was Nettie. And her sons were faithful. It was really astounding. And and her husband was a really great, I mean, everybody was a great guy, great guy, talented guy, fun guy, uh, advanced in his career. He was also a a classical jazz guitarist of the highest order. Really terrific guy. And I'm not telling him because he's shared this story many a time. But as we, as we began to try to get to know him, there was always this kind of pushing us away in a very adept way, because he was good, he was savvy socially. And so before you even knew it, you were off the scent of what the Holy Spirit was trying to help you to help him be convicted of, because he just did it so artfully. And he really was an artful dodger of conviction, and very polite all along the way. And I was like, oh, how, you know, we missed it. But then... But, but everybody had a sense that there was something 
hidden in Jack's life. And that for whatever reason, he wasn't really leading the victorious life that it seems that he was built for. And if anything, he was just half-stepping it, hoping that somehow if he rolled the dice with all these secrets, things would work out for him at the end in Judgment Day. And finally, his two sons decided, we don't know what it is, but we're going to make the best appeal that we can. And Jack had this big armchair, as I guess a lot of dads have, and you know, and he's, he's there in his basement man cave. And his, his two sons come downstairs, and they're both in their uh, late teens, early 20s at this point. And they came down, and they both knelt in front of the ottoman at the feet of their dad. And they prayed together, one with another, right before their dad. And they prayed that they would have the courage to talk to their dad about everything that they needed to talk to. And that's you know, a bit of an awkward position at that moment. There's no kind of artful dodging, savvy social skills that are actually going to take you out of this one. And I think Jack realized that as he sat there like, uh-oh, there is no place to run. Uh, he even felt the Holy Spirit really had kind of surrounded him and brought him into this place where it's going to have to come through. And so then his sons, you know, they, they, they grabbed his hand and, and they told him how much they respected him and they loved him. But they knew, they didn't know what it was, but they knew there was something. Something that kept him from really running after the full surrender and trust in Jesus that, that they know really ought to have been his life. The joy that would come from living that kind of a life. And they insisted and they insisted. And then finally, as, as they were there weeping, Jack began to weep as well. And then he came clean. And, and he, he shared with them that on the other side of the D.C. Beltway, there was another family. And it was also his family. There was another woman that, that thought of herself as, as his wife. And another child who thought of herself as his daughter. And I don't think they knew that's what was going to come out at that moment. And they were floored and they were on the floor at this point. Uh, but, but, but they prayed and they were gracious and they weeped all the more that the Holy Spirit had worked so powerfully to allow him to have this breakthrough. That he was trying to manage with all that he had. And, and so clean he came. And within the next week of, of studying the Bible, we were able to, to, to see him baptized into Christ. His wife forgave him through, through that process. She has become like a second mother to his other daughter, brings her to church all the time. But it, it's an amazing story of what it is that Jesus wants to do to be able to reconcile us. No matter how dark or deceived or ashamed we may become. And so as we look at Jesus making his way through the crowds, we're not at first going to appreciate the depth of the shame of the center story here, but I hope to be able to give a little bit of background to be able to make it a bit more clear. So in verse 40 it says, Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was, and, and by the way, imagine trusting Jesus this much. 
Your, your 12-year-old daughter is having her last breaths. And rather than remain with her, you decide you're going to get up, get away, leave for this unknown element, this, this healer named Jesus, and leave your daughter. Even right there shows that there was a bit of trust in this man. He, he, he lived in the same area as Jesus. He would have known of some of the exploits of Jesus. But to be able to, to trust at that very moment, but I think the last thing you want to do when you have somebody in that kind of condition is to be able to leave them. But sometimes God has to put us into that desperate a mode to be able to recognize, I got nothing else. I could try to hold on to my self-reliance and what I'm trying to do to fix this situation, but I realize it is broke to a point where there's nothing that I can do to be able to fix it. And so he leaves his daughter, his 12-year-old daughter, his only daughter, and goes to Jesus. And as Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And imagine, I mean, think of him walking through, and Jairus comes to him. And Jairus is pleading with him to come to his house. And as he pleads with him to come to his house, already the crowds are slowing down his progress. And you've got to think that Jairus must have been thinking like, all right, how do I keep my cool and somehow like part this crowd be the fullback to Jesus, the tailback right now, and be able to make the way to the house as soon as possible. I think if you're the dad, I mean, you'd be tempted, I think, to start throwing the bodies at that point to clear the way so that Jesus can get to that house. So, I mean, you left that house. That was hard enough. And then to be just kind of stuck in this slow-moving crowd as they're all kind of moving around has got to be just like infuriating to the man. But it's going to get much worse for him. Because not only is the crowd moving at a glacial pace, but now it's going to stop. Because in the midst of this throng of crowd that is crushing in on him, verse 43, a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. Now, this is what Luke writes. And we know from Colossians 4.14, Luke's profession. He was a doctor. He was a physician. Now, Mark, when he writes this, he writes it a little bit differently. He writes, and she spent all her money that she had on physicians. And then he has this part. And she didn't get better. In fact, she got worse. And Luke does a little creative editing on, on Mark at that point, And just kind of mentions that, you know, and as a result of all this, she, she didn't really have the wherewithal that she used to have. From, from before. So I, I like that little touch. But no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. And what, what this really is talking about is in, a, in any good Jew, in any rabbi especially, they would, they would have their tunic. Over that tunic would be a big cloak, which, which kind of comes off and ends up being kind of your blanket at night as well. So it's a big square. And at the end of each of the four corners is a tassel of blue and white and scarlet yarn. And it's, it's all prescribed by the Old Testament. And what those tassels represent is a remembrance and a reminder, not just of the law, but to perfect obedience to the law. And so Jesus would be walking with these little tassels. And it may have been her thought that, all right, how do I touch him in the one spot where he's not going to notice? Right? You've probably played this game if you're, if you're siblings especially, right? That you're going to kind of like touch the other person in a way where 
you know, that you're going to annoy them, but not annoy them. And you know if you, like, kind of touch them on any part of the clothes, they're going to know. But, but if they've got this tassel hanging out of a really kind of big burlap-y type, uh, you know, cloak that's on them, chances are you can get away with touching them and not being called out for touching them. Well, that's her mindset in a sense. And, and she goes up and she touches that, that smallest fringe. But to do that, she has to make her way through a crushing throng of eager, eager beavers wanting to be as close to Jesus as possible. And, again, think Jairus is here, like, come on, come on, come on. And, and suddenly, she makes this diving leap, perhaps, to be able to, you know, ding, touch, t- touch the, uh, uh, the tassel on Jesus. But Jesus, uh, and then uh, Jesus says, oh, I'm sorry, let me, let me, uh, Verse 44 again. But she came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. And immediately her bleeding stopped. And it, it, it says she was bleeding for 12 years. I like the way the, uh, the King James says it. She had an issue of blood for 12 years. And we talk about we have issues. Well, she had an issue for sure. Who touched me? Jesus asked. Verse 45. When they all denied it, Peter said... And this is going to be the the third time that we have Peter say it this way. He says, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. And in Mark's version, he says, how can you ask who touched you? Can't you see this huge crowd? But remember when we were studying Luke 5, and he says, Master, we've fished all night, haven't caught a thing. But because you say so, we'll let our nets down on the other side. And it's like he's kind of saying master, but at the same time, he's like, "Mm, but I don't know if you really got it going on here. And then later on, when Jesus is sleeping in the bow of the ship, and the disciples come up to him and they're like, master, we're going to drown. Help help, help us out. Well, same, same word here. It's not the word for Lord. It's the word basically for boss. It's like, yo, boss. You know, yeah, we've been fishing, but you know, boss, because you say so, we'll do it. Boss, don't you care that we're going to drown? I mean, come on. Is this the time for a nap when our, our ship is going down? And then this, you know, the crowd is crushing in. Who touched me? And Peter again with the boss. Yo, boss, do you not see the crowds? And you ask us. So it's never a good sign when Peter begins what he's about to say with, yo, boss. And... It happens a couple more times in, in Luke 9, but I'll, I'll wait till we get there uh, to be able to look at those. But Jesus said, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. That's an odd phrase, right? Power has gone out from me. It, almost as though Jesus has been, I don't know, like depleted of, of some way or another. And, and the best way that I can help to understand that for myself anyway is to look at what Isaiah 53 says about Jesus. And Jesus, is, is, it said about him also in Matthew 8, uh, 17. Matthew, for your notes, just put it down. Uh, Isaiah 53, 4-6, or Matthew 8, 17, where it says, Surely he took up our infirmities and he bore our illnesses. We appreciate the idea that Jesus took on our sins, but Matthew 53, as well as Matthew, I'm sorry, Isaiah 53, as well as Matthew 8, also makes it just as clear, not just about sin, but also about all of our weaknesses, all of our infirmities. He's ultimately setting us up for imperishable bodies. By his resurrection, having borne all that we have, 
rising imperishable, he is setting us up, even through his, his earthly life, for what will be a life without illness, a life without infirmity, and a life without sin. And here's a little precursor of that, as he takes on very directly what will ultimately be taken care of for all of us, even our weaknesses, infirmities, sicknesses, or illnesses. Verse 47, then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet in the presence of all the people. She told why she had touched him and how she had instantly been healed. Then he said to her daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. We'll talk about that more in a minute, but Jesus makes sure that this thing is coming out into the public notice. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Now, if you're Jairus, how tempted is this to have an attitude of all attitudes? Not just to the crowds, but even to this woman who stops the really slow procession as it was. But you don't hear any of that in Jairus. All you have here is just a quiet resolve on his part. That this is all I got, and I'm riding this horse all the way in, because it's the only thing that has got any sort of hope for me. And so, your daughter is dead, do do not bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe, and she'll be healed. It may have been actually easier for him to believe, having just seen Jesus say to this woman, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. I think it gives him a bit of a kind of a vision and a leg up of what it is that that, uh, he, he thinks can happen. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, Jesus did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James. What, maybe it's because any matter needs to be established by two or three witnesses. Maybe because Jesus only works in the presence of faith. We're not exactly sure of this. But just Peter, John, and James. And the child's father and mother. Because they obviously had faith as well. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead, but asleep. Now, this wailing that you think of is not just you having a, a really hard cry over something. These are professional wailers that would have been there. As a matter of fact, they're referenced in Jeremiah uh, chapter 9, 17 and 18. There in Jeremiah 17, it says, Go call for the wailers, the, 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 the women, and ask them to come. Send the most skillful of them. There's actually a skill in this wailing ability that you're able to have. And years ago, when we went to Israel, I was at the wailing wall. And and at the wailing wall, there was a a woman that was standing next to me, and she had this skill. Boy, did she have this skill. Remember, I've taken videos of it, and probably on some of our YouTube channels or something. But as she's kind of doing it, she kind of has this high-pitched scream, and then her tongue is doing something kind of wild in the, in the process of it to make it kind of reverberate a bit. But, but it is, is most likely the same idea that would have been filling this little house with this, this huge, you know. Anybody, anybody here know how to do it? <laughs> but 
while I was at the Wailing Wall, you know, I, I was trying to, you know, in our, our attempt to speak English to one another, ask her, hey, can you can you teach me how to do this? And so she was she was trying to teach me how to whale in the process. And we kind of bonded over that. And she was like, mm, I, I would stick to singing rather than the, the, the whaling. So I do. Now I just sing all the time. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, my child, get up. Now this phrase, they laughed at him, is very akin to our phrase. In English, you talk about shouting someone down. This is actually the same kind of prefix that associates that, that is tacked onto the word laughter. It's it's as though they laughed Jesus down, like there was a there was a purposeful scoffing to to the way that they were laughing and directing the laughter at him to make him feel as though he were an idiot to be thinking that there was hope in this situation. The ultimate faithlessness in the face of Jesus. But he took her by the hand and said, my child, get up. Her spirit returned, which showed that she really was dead. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Which means, I mean, when you're really sick, you have no appetite. I mean, she is not only healed, but healed to the point of her appetite returning. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. And why, why not tell anyone this time, but in the previous story, go tell everybody. Well, maybe then in this story, Jesus is protecting this little girl. Because later, when he heals Lazarus, and people are upset that Lazarus is just a source of faith, what is it that they all want to do to Lazarus? They want to kill him again. And so it may be, for the protection of this little girl, this 12-year-old girl, that Jesus says, you know what, let's keep this one on the DL. You know, over, over there in the Decapolis, on the other side of Galilee, that's fine. There's not going to be any throngs coming from there. Let, 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 let the demoniac go talk to them. But for over here in Capernaum, we're right here in the heart of it all. Let's, let's just be cool about this one. Uh, but as I look at this, this passage, what really comes to mind to me is that it's never too late to bring your shame and pain to Jesus. And if I had one point that really jumps out at me, and, and I hope that it can kind of help us to make sense of this passage, it's exactly that. It's never too late, no matter where you are, no matter where you think you're perceived, it's never too late to bring your shame and pain to Jesus. You know, and on this idea of, of, of shame and pain, this, this woman in particular has blood. And according to Luke 15, if you have bleeding, you are defiled. You are unclean. You are somewhere in the neighborhood of a leper in terms of how you're to be viewed by the society, by the village in which you live, by your own family. And you're not allowed to have physical contact with anyone while you are enduring some sort of an illness that has a continuing issuing of blood from, from your body, which is, which is what's going on in her life. There's no wonder she spent every last cent that she had to make sure that this thing could be reconciled. 
Because it's not just the fact that she wants to have strength and not be anemic all the time to be able to have strength in her bones again, but also just to touch somebody again. To touch her siblings, her mom, or her dad, or perhaps she has a family. Just imagine, you know, all that, that, that she's neglected or, or neglected from being able to experience because of what's going on in her life. But she also knows that when she is anywhere in the village or near the village, she is viewed by everyone as, oh, watch out. That's the defiled girl. That's the unclean woman. Don't go near her at all or else you won't be able to participate in, in society for a whole week. You'll be put out of the camp. You'll be put out of the village for an entire... Do not go near her at all. And so imagine the attendant, the accompanying shame that hangs over her everywhere she goes. To see an old friend, her face to light up, only to realize, no, I, there, there, there can't be a connection. And this goes on for 12 long years. Think about where you were 12 years ago. What was going on in your life in 2002? Think about it from 2002 until this day. You've not been able to have any personal contact whatsoever. How different would you be right now? How tempted would you be to be completely bitter and checked out completely? But she keeps on fighting, keeps on fighting through it all. But when she hears of this hope of Jesus, she decides that she's going to get to Jesus. And hope against hope that perhaps, as she even reasons in her faith, if I can just get to Jesus, even touch the hem of his garment, the, the tassel of his, of his cloak, that I could be healed. But what does she have to get through to get to Jesus? Not just the village that has been fearful of her even setting foot in there, but she's now have to wind her way through a thronging, impacted crowd all around Jesus. She's going to take a huge risk, maybe even her own life in her hands. Because she's now going to have to work her way through the crowd, all the way through. I'm sure she would have to come in contact with many, many men in that crowd, defiling every one of them, every step that she took, on her way to Jesus Christ. But the amazing part is, as she touches Jesus, she feels the strength come to our body. That's the Jesus who wants to take our sin, take our infirmities, take our sickness, take our weakness. That we can really, really get to Jesus. Trust in Him. Even though it's going to put us out there exposed to ridicule. And, and she wants to do it though, also on the down low. She wants to just kind of be tapped. Alright, check it out. I'm Feeling good? I'll have the rabbi check me out in a couple days. It'll be all right. I know you're mad at me right now. Sorry I touched you, touched you. Touched. Yeah, cooties. Yeah, I know. You'll, you'll see. This is going to work itself out. All right. Hey, you know, taxi. Thank you. Out out of here. That, that's her plan. But Jesus doesn't allow that plan to play itself out. And it's not that Jesus doesn't know. He knows. But he wants to give her the opportunity Rather than be forced, but give her the opportunity to come forward and really get reconciled. And I think when we have shame of different sorts, we want to have the same sort of plan on our part. Okay, here's how it's going to work. I'm going to have a little prayer to God. To have, you know what? Just between Him and me, we'll work this thing out. 
repentance is going to kind of well from within me. I'm going to be on a good path. And then after about maybe six, seven, eight months, when, you know, it looks like I really got this thing under control, then I'll kind of, kind of share it with a few people. Rabbi will give me a little blessing. Everything's going to be cool. And, and, and then nobody's going to be the wise of, of, of it all. And, and we have this same, like, darkness strategy, but it's the exact opposite of what Jesus wants, of how it is that we're going to really be reconciled to. And so Jesus is like, you know what? I'll wait. Who was it? Come on. And when she saw, oh, there's no getting out of here. You know, when Jack, sitting in his armchair, saw, like, there's no exit. They got me flanked. What am I going to do? The Holy Spirit is for sure pressing on me right now. You need to come clean. Where are you at? You know, there are a lot of issues that can grab us. It may not be an issue of blood, but it might be an issue in your marriage. Maybe, maybe, maybe you're feeling like, I don't, I don't think we can come clean on this one. If I can clean on this one, oh my goodness, my, my husband's going to be so angry. And, and you know what? It's going to be embarrassing to, to, to everybody else. But this is what Jesus... Why did he want her to come clean, though? Because he wanted to make it abundantly clear to everyone in society that not only is she healed, but she is meant to be connected to you again. And we being the body of Christ, as repentance occurs and restoration occurs, it's not just that, okay, let's you know have somebody confess publicly. No, it's in, as Jesus wants too, so that there can be a real reconciliation. That there's, that there's no longer kind of any kind of faking it our, our way back in or any darkness strategy of coming back in. Not that it needs to be broadcast, but it, it does not need, and it should not ever happen in a path of darkness. And, and it is the light that, that allows it all to really be exposed and cleansed and reconciled and, and brought back into alignment as Jesus wants. And so he does this beautiful thing to this woman that at first looks like, oh, Jesus, why are you doing this? She didn't mean that as a expletive, but as like, really, Jesus, why are you doing this? Uh, and, and, and so she, she shares it, and the passage says that she declares it in front of everyone. I mean, it's, a, it's almost like a preaching statement that it makes as, as she says these things. And comes clean and like, oh, how's this going to be received? You know how it's received? Everything is made right, and by the end of it, go in peace. To be able to have shalom, the fullness of life, reconciliation, and that's the way to every one of us. If we'll only deal with the situation thoroughly. Jeremiah also says, I quoted from Jeremiah 9 a minute ago, but in verse in chapter 8, Jeremiah says, My people bandage the wound, they do not bandage the wound thoroughly, and so we are not healed. I think that's what we like to do too. I know I do. Let me just kind of like gloss it over and I think it'll work out. No, no, no. If there's half measures, it avails nothing. Half measures don't bring about the real depth of healing. So maybe it's something in your marriage. Maybe there's a, there's a shame of what has gone on with your kids. Maybe there's a, you know, a, just a, a, a desperation that maybe I'm just damaged beyond repair. Maybe there's a hypocrisy that has grown up. Maybe kind of in some sort of a leadership position. And 
You, you view it a certain way, but yet there's this darkness that's been going on. And you think, oh, I don't know how I'm going to like really come clean with this because it's going to hurt the faith of others. And, you, know, you, you think a lot of excuses to, to why it will be that a darkness strategy is the best strategy. None of it is ever the best strategy if it involves any darkness whatsoever. Jesus thrives. The Holy Spirit thrives in the light. It's the place where real healing occurs. And, and for us to any way try to avoid that is to play in the hands of Satan here. And I've seen it again and again. You know, maybe there's a long flirtation going on with somebody at work, somebody at school, somebody online. This is not something to deal with in the dark. Run after this thing. Run to Jesus. Work this thing out in the body of Christ. There is real Shalom that waits you on the other side, rather than this gnawing idea that, oh, someday I'm going to have to really deal with this. And, you know, and if I die beforehand, well, here's hoping that things work out on Judgment Day for me. That's no way to live your life. Why not live victoriously every step of the way to feel strength come back into your soul again? To be able to step with confidence, knowing that you do so in alignment with the healing of Jesus Christ every step that you take. Why shortchange the life that you were meant to have by Jesus taking on your infirmities, your weaknesses, and your sins for the sake of some sort of enslavement to an image that, that, that suddenly becomes so much more important than living before the very face of God? It's, it's time to get deeply real if any of this exists and just pull off these shackles that Satan has somehow been able to sneak onto you and let them fall and run after what it is that Jesus has in store for you. Maybe you're studying the Bible, you're seeking, there's stuff that's going on. There's lots of taboos that you think, oh, but they're not going to understand. I've had premarital sex. I've had extramarital sex. I've had homosexual sex. I've had bizarreness in my life. I've stolen this. I've done this to my employer. I'm a hypocrite. I, I mean, you pick it. We got plenty of it. But it's been reconciled. It's been washed. It's been justified. It's been sanctified. And it has been set free. The, the, the chains of those things have dropped to the ground. And, and we know what it is to really be able to walk away from that and live the victorious life that Jesus always meant for us to be able to live. Jesus wants your shame and he wants your pain. He doesn't want you to be managing it anymore. Stop managing it. Ditch it. Give it to him. And it's not too late. It's not too late to bring him your shame and pain. Jairus, I'm sure, had every thought. It's too late. It's too late. Ah. But, but he had hung on. He hung on. And in that faith, Jesus worked. Jesus always works in that way. Think of all your favorite Bible stories. Think of the veggie tales that you cut your teeth on growing up. Every one of those is like, oh man, he's really in a pickle now. But <laughs> how's he going to get out of this one? You pick it. I mean, is it is it Joseph in the cistern about to be sold into slavery or killed? Oh, look, God pulls him out. Or is it Moses before the Red Sea with Pharaoh's army bearing down on him? What's he going to do? How's it? Oh, look, God worked it out. Maybe it's Gideon, who God made sure that he put him into a rough situation. You got 32,000 troops? 
that's not a really good story. Like, what kid's going to grow up talking about the sword of Gideon? When you had 32,000 troops, they had 20,000, and you walked and stopped on them. They're not inspiring about that. You just beat them down. There's no story there. Let's do this. Let's take you down to 10,000. No, let me get 300. How about that? 300. And then you're going to break them into three parties of 100. And you're going to take down tens of thousands of Midianites like that. How about that? All right. Good. Play it out. Let's see how it works. This is God's specialty. If your life is two together, maybe you need to, to kind of fumble a little bit more so that you can be part of his specialty working there. How about Ruth or even Naomi? Don't call me Naomi more. Call me Mark. I'm better. Everybody dies. There's no food. What's going to happen to me now? Voila. David is in your, your, your very family line. How about David? Little guy. Big Goliath. Oh no, how's it going to work out? Hey, this is just the stuff I need, says God. Take it on. Or even Elisha, the encounters the widow. New widow, husband just died, he's a prophet, great man, she's all alone, she's got two boys. But now the creditor is coming and he's going to enslave the two boys. What's the girl to do? Oh wait, here comes God. All is fixed. You are now financially set for the rest of your life. How cool is that? A couple chapters later in Second Kings, there's a famine in Samaria. People are like having a hard time. They're eating their babies. They're arguing about, well, we ate my boy. Now we're going to boil your boy up. And the lepers are there saying, oh, what can we do? And we're all going to die. Let's go out to the camp of the army and see what happens. Oh, wait, there's food galore. And they connect everybody to it. And God prevails, just as he said he would through the prophet Elisha. I mean, you think, oh, but not me. I'm too far gone. The clock is ticking. It's too late. It's not going to work. That's what God specializes in. What, I mean, do you only have faith in being the favorite? I mean, God gives you faith in being the underdog over and over and over again through all of this. Not to mention, three guys named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Oh, what's going to happen to them? They're in the fiery furnace. How about Daniel in the lion's den? How about Peter in prison? How about Paul in prison? You pick it. This is what God specializes in. And it's not too late. No matter where you are, it's not too late in your marriage, it's not too late in your kids, it's not too late as you try to seek God, it's not too late to finally come clean, it's not too late for all of this to get right, it's not too late. But to really allow this Jesus to be your Jesus, this Jesus who specializes in the depth of shame and pain and weakness and mess and misery and filth and defilement, to be the Jesus who wants to embrace you in the midst of all of that. And even though it may have been going on way too long, way too embarrassing, now is the perfect time for that to be the very case. And so, as we close on this great, amazing chapter in Jesus' life, we got to do something about this. Let's not become a little bit more pharisaical. Let's put another crust on our heart, another callus that's there. But let's not just hear the word, but do what it says. There's something, something that's been there that's kept us from living an unfettered, glorious, joyful life. Something we try to manage in the dark. Something we think that, man, if, if I can just do it my own way, this is the way to, to really make this thing work. Maybe you're a teen studying the Bible, trying to hold back because it's a deep, dark secret. Trust me, your parents already think that what, what you have done has already happened. 
Uh, maybe it's in your marriage right now. Maybe it's in, in your walk. Maybe it's in your leadership. I don't know what it is. But you know what? Let it be that we do not let sleep come to our eyes until we really do deal with whatever this, this might be. Whatever it is that the Holy Spirit has kind of, kind of put on us, we get real and enjoy the fact that we have a Jesus that's like, that's what I'm talking about. Yes, exactly. That's what I've been waiting for. Bring it on. This is why I'm here. Let me take it. Let you live with shalom. Let you live the victorious life. Let strength come to your bones again. Let you get out there without the accusation of Satan anymore in your, in whispering in your ear and get back out there and be able to live the life that I've always meant for you to be able to live. Amen. Let's get after it. Amen. Amen.